0: Welcome back to The Joseph Carlson Show. On today's episode, we have two huge interviews to get into. First of all, we have the OG, the best investor in the world, Warren Buffett, sitting down for an hour, and he reveals many highlights and many thoughts on recent moves, recent trades like buying the companies in Japan, selling out of TSM, and many other subjects. I'm going to go through and highlight what I think are the most important takeaways from Buffett's interview. But then like I said, this is a two for one. We also have the CEO of Amazon, Andy Jassy, in a sit-down interview answering questions about what's going on with Amazon. He talks about retail business. He talks about cloud computing. He talks about the entire media sector. He shares many thoughts on what's going on, and we're going to dive into all of it in this episode so as always we have a lot to jump into in this episode we're going to be going over both of those interviews and i'm also going to be commenting just a bit on the market today and my portfolio now having said that let's go ahead and jump right in now the passive income portfolio is a experiment it's an experiment in showing my finances what i'm doing with my investments publicly over the course of years. I started this portfolio back in 2017 and I started showing it publicly in 2019. Since then I've been doing weekly uploads, showing what I'm doing with my money transparently every single week. So what you're seeing here is a continuation of a portfolio that I share both the good and the bad. I've shown when it's gone in the red and I'll show when it goes in the green. Right now it's performing really well. The portfolio started off as a dividend growth portfolio my major focus at the very beginning was on the dividend the yield of the dividend at the time over time i've shaped my portfolio molded it and i've refined it to be a smaller and i think stronger portfolio with a bigger emphasis on the underlying economics of the companies i'm buying each one of them does pay a dividend currently so all of these companies are dividend growers but instead of focusing on companies that have very high yields, I'm focusing on companies that can grow their dividends very quickly. There's a couple standout companies in the portfolio currently. Texas Roadhouse is at $11,700 in gains. This company recently just hit an all-time high yesterday at $111 per share. In the consumer category, we have Costco as the big standout here as well. This company's done really well over the past five years. I think it has a great future. I'm extremely bullish on Costco as a company. In the real estate category, of course, we have Vici. This company's pulled back a little bit in stock price over the past month, but I think it's still chugging along. And one of my favorite things about this company is the enormous dividends that it pays. I can bring up my activity feed here and look at my recent dividends. And right here on the 6th of April, just this month, we have a dividend payment for $597, nearly $600 from a single company. That's the biggest dividend payment that I receive from any company. Vici is a real estate company and it pays very, very big dividends. I get some other healthy dividends as well, so it's not the only one that I'm getting income from, but Vici is a big one. In the tech category, of course, we have Apple and Microsoft, two dividend paying big tech companies. I'm currently up $18,600. It's been a great performer. And the thing I like about Apple is it's not just the multiple increasing. That's not what's happening with this company. Rather, the stock is going up because the company's earning more and more money. Microsoft is another one that I've been recently buying a bigger stake into as it's been selling off, but I'm basically flat on the company. I'm up just a couple thousand dollars on it. I'm going to give that one more time. Other notable mentions are the railroads, Canadian Pacific and Union Pacific. I bought into these companies in 2023. So they're brand new. I think they're gonna do great, but right now I don't have much to show. They're basically just flat this year. And then finally we have the financial category. This is another one that I bought into this year. These companies are unique because they work in finance but they don't have any credit risk. They aren't lending money. They don't operate like a bank using debt. Instead, they make money by selling services, selling data, and collecting fees. And that's a business that I really think is attractive. So these ones are brand new as well. And likewise, I have nothing to show for them so far, but I think over the next five years, I'll get really attractive returns with both of these companies. So we'll see how this turns out overall that's the highlight of the portfolio today that's all the holdings all the bets that i'm making and i'll let you know when i introduce new holdings or when i start adding to another position so if you want to see real investing which is transparent investing with thorough follow-ups every single week and showing what i'm actually doing with my money you can follow along the channel for free that's what you're going to get for year after year after year with this channel. Now let's go ahead and move on and we'll jump into the interviews. We're gonna start off with Buffett. Now in this hour long interview, they go over a bunch of different subjects. What I wanna do is go over what I think are the most important highlights, the biggest takeaways. The first question that Buffett's asked, is regarding his net sales of banks. Buffett has been selling out a financial company, specifically banks, in aggregate over the past couple of years.
1: Some of the banks that you've sold include USB, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, PNC. Should we think that they're banks that aren't run, well run because you've sold them? Or? No, okay. no, no. But I do think banking can get in a lot of trouble just because of the kind of things that they did. And that... that I. I didn't like the banking business as well as I did before.
0: He says it pretty straightforward there. The reason he's selling the banks is because he thinks they can get into trouble, and he's changed his mind a little bit. He just doesn't like them as much as he did previously. And that is something that Warren Buffett is very good at. Now, an egotistical investor, one that has a lot of pride, a lot of ego, would be unwilling to admit that they've changed their mind on a prior investment. Because they would view that as a weakness. If you change your mind, that means that your initial research wasn't as good as it should have been. If you change your mind, that means that you didn't have a good thesis to begin with. That's not how Warren Buffett thinks. He doesn't have ego. He doesn't have pride. He has an open mind with his current investments. If he no longer likes them the same way that he did when he originally bought in, he sells them. And that's something good investors routinely do. They have an open mind. They don't make decisions based off of emotion or attachment to a company. If their views on a company changes, they sell. Oftentimes that's accompanied with a level of criticism from other people. If you sell a company that you once liked, you can be criticized for it. But Buffett doesn't care about that. He's not there to earn points from the public, he's there to earn money. Now the big question is, he still owns a lot of Bank of America. So he's picking and choosing here. He's a net seller of banks. He's been selling off these companies over the past couple of years. But Bank of America is his second largest holding right behind Apple. It's still a massive position in the Buffett portfolio.
1: Pardon me? Why did you keep Bank of America? What, 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 a, uh, they invited, I mean, I invited myself in many years earlier, and they made a, a very decent deal for us. And I like Brian Moynihan enormously uh, and I I just don't want to, I don't want to sell it.
0: He's a little bit coy when asked about why he sold all the other ones, but not Bank of America. He says that he likes Bank of America. And if you caught it in his answer, the first sentence, the first thing he went to was that he got a pretty good deal. If you recall, Warren Buffett did not just buy Bank of America in the open market like everyone else. He got a preferential deal, By the fact that he has a lot of money, he has a lot of connections. So he got a deal that the rest of us as retail investors are not able to get. And I don't believe that Buffett would own Bank of America today if he had to buy the company at the price that it trades at today on the open market. The next thing that Warren Buffett's asked about is the job of the Fed. How is the Fed doing and how would he rate their performance?
1: I do not think I could run the Fed as well as Jay Powell's run. I think Jay Powell's been a terrific and you have to act on insufficient information and you've got a you've got an ultimate responsibility to the American public. And it doesn't mean you can stop recessions, it doesn't mean that you can turn bad loans into good loans or anything else, but it it does mean that you gotta keep the system working. And the system came close to stopping. If you read a book called Trillion Dollar Triage, you can you can get it on a day-by-day account, and people don't know how close it was. And and Jay Powell did not call for studies or position papers and, you know, lengthy debate and everything. You just don't do it. You act.
0: There's an overarching bias to not like the Fed. If you go onto social media, one of the biggest punching bags ever is the Fed, in particular Jay Powell, whoever's leading the Fed. Part of the reason that the Fed is such a big punching bag is because what they do is affect monetary policy, and anyone likes an excuse for their stock performance doing poorly. So, whenever the Fed does anything that can potentially negatively affect people's stocks or their companies by raising interest rates, who do they go as the punching bag? The Fed. He's the one to blame. Jay Powell's the one that caused all of this grief. In reality, when I look at Jay Powell, he strikes me as someone that does have integrity, that's trying to do the right thing. He is working with incredibly limited data at the time. Lots of people judge him in hindsight when he's making decisions in real time. Overall, I agree with Warren Buffett here. Now, moving on, Buffett's asked about the overall economy and what he's seeing in his various companies. As we know, Berkshire Hathaway is a conglomerate that owns a lot of different companies in different sectors. So, Warren Buffett has day by day data. He can see day by day data about how all of these companies are doing, what their revenue looks like, what consumer habits look like. And he's asked about his insights on whether or not. He thinks we're headed into a recession, or whether he thinks things are still going well.
1: It was minus 22 percent in February from a year ago. In they sales? didn't think that was going to happen. In sales? You mean profit? In, in sales, profits yeah. are down a lot more than that. On the other hand, some of our businesses are still doing fine, but they all are reporting that the new you know some of them are living off of orders were placed months earlier and that sort of thing. But but uh, it's a tougher world out there in a great many businesses not in the insurance business people that run our businesses that do have any sensitivity to the economy are surprised at where they are now compared to where they thought they were going to be 6 months ago
0: things are slowing down a little bit especially with economically sensitive businesses some companies are are so strong and resilient that they don't really rely on a strong economy those ones are doing fine but companies like the railroads companies like Companies like railroads and retail companies are slowing down a little bit. So that's something to be expected over the next couple of quarters. The sales and earnings of your companies might be lower than expected. But we can see how concerned Warren Buffett is about this. Things are slowing down. Is he shocked and scared and frightened and wanting to sell out of these companies? Let's hear his answer here.
1: That doesn't mean the world is coming to an end or anything. 58 years I've been running Berkshire, I mean, we've run into all kinds of problems, but... That's that's what business is about, and, and and we run our business so that we don't depend on everything being, being hunky-dory always. We run it so that we will be the last man standing. And, and
0: So Warren Buffett notes that things are slowing down, but the world's not coming to an end. And when he's been investing for over 60 years, he's seen this over and over again little economic slowdowns as we go through different cycles the businesses that are the most impacted by this are the economically sensitive businesses when i look at my portfolio those type of companies are the industrials they're going to be affected by an economic slowdown because they move stuff when the economy slows down less stuff is being moved and the company that's less economically sensitive is something like costco a consumer defensive that sells toilet paper and water. So if you have an understanding of the type of businesses you're invested in, it can help gauge your expectations and make it so you can weather through different storms easier. For Buffett, he's not concerned at all about this because he says that he's shaped his company in a way where he doesn't anticipate things to be hunky-dory all the time, things to be going well with the economy. He says he wants to be the last man standing. That's how he operates his business. Being the last man standing means that he does not take risks with other people's money. He invests it, but he does not take risk. And that shatters a lot of people's perceptions because they view investing as taking risk. The way that Warren Buffett reduces risk in his portfolio is by carrying in excess of $110 billion in cash, which is more than enough money to get through any economic slowdown. So he's reduced risk as much as possible in the Berkshire portfolio. Now, the next topic that they ask about is always cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, that type of thing. Buffett has said that cryptocurrency, specifically Bitcoin, is not only rat poison, which Charlie Munger coined that term, but he said that it's rat poison squared. Buffett's no fan of cryptocurrency. He doesn't like it. It goes against everything that he preaches, which is investing in things that have intrinsic value, which means that they're productive assets and they generate incomes in and of themselves. Bitcoin doesn't fit with his overall thesis in the same way that gold doesn't. Now, he's asked about an updated opinion on this because Bitcoin right now is actually performing really well. So doesn't this prove Buffett's opinion wrong?
1: That's predicting when speculation will end or, you know, when the gambling instinct will go away and when more people want to get out than are getting in. And I have no way of, if I thought I was good at that, I'd figure out a way to make a lot of money and different things. All I'm trying to do is buy good businesses. But I, the one thing I know is I, you know, I didn't like chain letters when I was a kid. I thought, why in the world should I send along a chain letter the next day when I could start my own? I mean, I've seen People do stupid things all my life. And, and I, I and I really, I empathize with that. I mean, people like to play the lottery. They're going to get 60 cents back on the dollar or whatever the number may be. And I mean, people love the idea they're going to make more money tomorrow. And it really drives them crazy if their next door neighbor is making a lot of money not knowing what they're doing. And they're just sitting there and their spouse is saying, you know, why is that guy getting a second car and why? why are we missing this whole thing and the gambling instinct is so strong
0: there's a lot to break down in this take on cryptocurrency he's asked about why it's gone up and he says that he can never time when these type of things end he just knows that eventually something that doesn't have intrinsic value is going to come to an end and he sees bitcoin and cryptocurrency as no different it holds no intrinsic value in buffett's opinion so he doesn't see it as a worthwhile investment And he instantly, after talking about Bitcoin, he talks about how people have done stupid things like this their whole lives with chain emails as something dumb and silly to do with people that just like to fit in. But then he instantly transitions over to gambling. In Buffett's mind, he doesn't see any distinguishment. There's nothing different between owning cryptocurrencies and gambling. In his opinion, It's all speculation on something that doesn't have intrinsic value. With cryptocurrency, you're trying to time the market and outsmart other people. With gambling, you're trying to beat the odds, where the odds are not in your favor. He doesn't like either activity, and he sees them as nearly indistinguishable. And I share the same opinion on this. I have never owned Bitcoin, and aside from all the claims of how it's revolutionizing technology, I have yet to see how that's really come to fruition. When I look at Bitcoin, or Solana, or Ether... I don't see these being used in any meaningful capacity whatsoever. I don't see blockchain being used in any meaningful capacity whatsoever. Now moving on, we get to a couple more key pieces of information that Warren Buffett gives us. The first one is the answer to the mysterious question of why Warren Buffett sold TSM. If you recall, Warren Buffett excitedly purchased a lot of TSM And then only three months later, the very next release of his 13F filing, it showed that he had sold the entire position. So a lot of investors were wondering what happened. This is typically not what Warren Buffett does.
1: Taiwan Semiconductor is one of the best, well, it's the best in that field and is one of the best companies in the world. It's a fabulous enterprise. And uh, Apple buys a lot of the products from them. I mean, they're good and they're coming to the United States and we're, we're actually, I think, maybe even... Building for one of our subsidiaries, helping build facilities for them. But I do think that that uh, they, there is a danger there to some. I don't have any idea. There's actually a danger of seismic a- action. I mean, and and, and, and and where they're located. But I, I reevaluated that part of it. I didn't reevaluate the business, the management, or anything of the sort. It is a fabulous company, uh, and you know. It, uh, you reevaluated the geopolitical risk yeah, from china sure, stepping sure. in yeah. to, to taiwan
0: yeah he reevaluated the geopolitical risk of china invading taiwan and even though he possesses the probability of it to be low the consequences of an invasion in taiwan it would materially adversely impact that company to a huge degree and warren buffett does not like the risk you notice a theme here with buffett Everything he does is centered around reducing risk. He's never trying to maximize upside. He's never saying this is the best bet. This is the one that's going to double or triple. His primary focus is being risk adverse, focusing on things that are sure bets, focusing on things that don't have a percent chance of it going into destruction. Now, this leads into the next question. If he's avoiding TSM because of concerns about China invading Taiwan, then why is he still invested in Apple? What is the difference there?
1: If somebody, if, if you're an Apple user and somebody offers you $10,000, uh, but the only proviso is you'll never be able to, they'll take away your, your iPhone and you'll never be able to buy another. You're not going to take it. Uh, if, if they tell you if you buy another Ford Motor car, they'll give you $10,000 not to do that. You'll take the $10,000 and you'll buy a Chevy instead. I mean, it, it is
0: The hypothetical that Warren Buffett just presented was that if you were paid $10,000, would you accept that to never use an Apple product again? So you get paid $10,000 one time, but the agreement is you can no longer use any Apple product for the rest of your life. I wouldn't accept that. I would never accept that deal. I rely too heavily on Apple products. To me, the use of the products themselves between the MacBook and the iPhone and the iPad and the watch and all the technology that they develop, all the services they develop, is worth more than $10,000 in my life. Now, there is a portion of people that would say, sure, I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that exchange. But it's not many. Most people want to be able to use Apple products. And I'd say the majority of Apple users, in agreement with Warren Buffett, would not accept $10,000 to never be able to use an Apple product again in their lifetime. I've actually done a very similar poll, except for with Apple, it was with Google. I made a poll on my Twitter following that said, would you agree to never being able to use YouTube again if you were paid $25,000? 67.5% of respondents said no. They would turn down 25K. That is the staggering value of these type of companies. YouTube has so much value in people's lives that they can't be paid to stop using it. Apple products have so much value in people's lives that it's unlikely they would accept a large one-time payment to never be able to use their products again. It's a company that makes too many good products that too many users like using. So this is the moat of Apple. Now, if you ask this same question about Ford, for example, and say, would you accept $10,000 to never buy another Ford car again? The exact same question that Warren Buffett asked, He is accurate in saying that the majority of people will accept it. They will easily move over to another car manufacturer. There's lots of good options to choose from, and they don't have the same type of attachment to the customer that something like Apple or YouTube does. Buffett may not understand all the technology behind Apple products, but he understands human behavior. He understands the durable competitive advantage of companies, and you can see that at play with this simple comparison. Now, the final question I wanna go over is Warren Buffett being asked about Paramount. This is a company where I have not understood the investment thesis here. Paramount's low valuation, I think that that's part of it, but it doesn't really fit in with the Warren Buffett investments. Paramount is a streaming business. It's much more volatile, it's highly competitive, and it's a lot of hit and miss based. A lot of things that Warren Buffett himself has said in the past that he doesn't like. So why did Buffett buy Paramount? Streaming you
1: know, is not really a very good business.
0: Let's pause right there first sentence out of his mouth after being asked about paramount is streaming is really not a good business so we're off to a good start why did he invest in paramount well streaming the whole company that that's just not a good business to be in
1: in entertainment have made lots of money the shareholders really haven't done that great over time and uh uh supplied to many it's it's a glamorous business and and uh i had some friends in hollywood you know and they they look for pigeons, you know, and they find them. I mean, it's like, it, it, it attracts people. And, uh,
2: you mean suckers? It's a
1: great way to meet girls, you know, for all. I know. I mean, but, but the uh, it isn't fundamentally that good a business, whether it was distributing, producing movies, or and, and you've got some people that have got deep pockets that aren't going to quit. And the product they're offering people, the chance to watch all those movies, you know, for peanuts and all that.
0: But... He's been talking for a while now, and I'm still waiting for the punchline here. Buffett, you were asked, why do you invest in Paramount? His opening sentence was, streaming is a bad business, and then he goes on for a minute talking about the entire industry and how he's basically loathsome of it. It, It's an industry which has embellishment and grandeur, has lots of people that dress up and it makes them feel good about themselves. They themselves become rich and wealthy. But the investors so far haven't done well in aggregate. So we're still waiting to see why Warren Buffett bought this company. So far, he's making a nice bear case against the entire industry.
1: Can they raise prices? We'll find out. But so far, they haven't been able to. They've been able to attract subscribers, but they have tracked them at a terrible price.
0: All right, you gave a whole lot of
2: reasons why not
1: to buy Paramount. Why did you buy it? Well, we'll see what happens.
0: Now, usually if Warren Buffett does not want to answer a question directly, he gives a very vague answer, a very non-answer answer. In this case, he just says, we'll find out. He doesn't answer the question. We still don't know why he bought Paramount, and we're left to our speculation I think that this was likely a purchase as an acquisition play. He knows that there's big time investors trying to scoop up as many streaming properties as possible. He knows that Paramount was trading at a very cheap price. And I think that there's a chance that Warren Buffett was thinking the company was going to be acquired by another larger company. Now, of course, we don't know this for sure. He doesn't give a direct answer, but that would be my guess. But that is the Buffett interview. I think a lot of insights have come from that singular interview. He has a strong focus on minimizing risk, on remaining financially stable, investing in companies with solid fundamentals, very strong free cash flows. His overall focus is always growing Berkshire without putting the investors in jeopardy. Now, moving on from the Buffett interview, we have another interview with another CEO of a massive conglomerate company. It's not technically a conglomerate, but Amazon may as well be a tech version of Berkshire. It has a series of different businesses all generating different amounts of cash flow and it runs on the edge of losing money some years, some years it has massive negative cash flows and making a lot of money other years. But the trend right now for Amazon is one that's a struggle. Amazon is losing a massive amount of money every single year and it's actually staggering if you see this visualized. I want to show you a series of three charts, three charts to illustrate how big this problem is for Amazon. Here's chart number one. We've all seen this one before. This is the free cash flow of Amazon over time, going back to 1996. But this right here illustrates a problem in and of itself, but this is not the only problem that Amazon is facing. If we look at chart two, this shows the free cash flow and then alongside it, the stock-based compensation. We can see the total cost to the shareholder as if the stock payments were done in cash, like a cash bonus. So this gives you a more accurate picture of what the financial situation looks like. Not only did the free cash flows turn negative in 2021 and 2022, but the stock-based compensation is exploding upwards. It's growing at an incredibly rapid pace. Now, in the new version of Qualtrim, we net these out to see the total impact on the free cash flow if stock-based compensation was treated like cash. I call this the adjusted free cash flow. This is what Amazon's adjusted free cash flow looks like. They had minus $36.5 billion of free cash flow if you net out the stock-based compensation. Minus $36.5 billion is the most any company has ever lost in the history of the world. There's no other recorded loss that big. Now, Amazon stock, as a result, has fallen precipitously over the past two years. It's been a struggle and the CEO, Andy Jassy, he hasn't had a great run in terms of stock performance. So what he's trying to do in this interview is show the plans of how he's going to fix this. And the first question is on this subject. Where does he see Amazon in terms of future investments and layoffs. I'm very
2: optimistic about what lies ahead for Amazon, and I think there are a lot of reasons for it. I'd start with just a couple data points. If you, if you look at our, our two largest businesses, if you look in our stores business, which are our retail business, we still only have, even though it's a, about a $434 billion business, we still only have about 1% of the worldwide market segment share in, in retail, and 80% of it still lives in physical stores. And if you look in our AWS business, which is about an $85 billion revenue run rate business, about 90% of that global IT spend is still on-premises, not in the cloud. So if you believe that those equations are going to flip over time, which we do and we're seeing
0: we have a lot more growth in front of us. One of the biggest criticisms that you hear about investing in large companies like Apple and Amazon is that they're so large that the law of large numbers means that their growth is gonna essentially go down to nothing. Now, I'm an investor in Amazon and I've heard this same argument continually for a long period of time. One of the time periods where I heard that Amazon is already very large, the growth is gonna decelerate, it's gonna slow down, was around 2020, around this time period right here. The revenue at the time Amazon did was around $80 billion in revenue. Now Amazon's revenue in the last quarter is nearing $160 billion. The retail segment is massive, and like he notes, most of retail is still physical. It's moving online every single year. Now next up he gets into the talk about the subject of the year, which is AI. That is the buzzword of the year. Unlike a lot of other buzzwords, I do think there's a lot behind AI. I think it's real. I think it's meaningful. I think it will have major impacts. So it's both a buzzword and a very meaningful term. Amazon is big into AI. They've they've done this in a sense with machine learning for a long period of time. But now they're getting directly into AI like many of their competitors. And they launched a new service, a new product called Amazon bedrock
2: what they want to do is they want to work off of a foundational model that's big and great already and then have the ability to customize it for their own purposes and that's what bedrock is which we announced today which is it'll give you access to um, large language models from anthropic from stability AI from AI 21 and from ourselves we're externalizing some of our own models we call titan and, then it lets and These you, are not
1: consumer models. These are models to build software.
2: Yeah, they're big, large language models that you can build um, uh, these generative AI experiences on top of, and you just have to fine-tune them for what's specific about your application. So that's bedrock, which I think will change the game for people.
0: What Amazon's trying to accomplish here ultimately is making it so that once again, developers and enterprise customers have no reason to leave AWS. They want to bring everything in-house. They want to be the solution for all technical needs. That's bedrock, which I think will change the game for people. And then, um, you know, there are going to be these applications built
2: on top of these large language models. ChatGPT is an example of that. What we announced today is something called Code Whisperer, which is for developers. And so if you're writing code, instead of having to write everything and do all the art and science yourself, you can, in a natural language way, just say what you want to do and Code Whisperer will generate the code for you, and that will substantially change developers' productivity.
0: Now, Amazon has a tool that mirrors Microsoft's Copilot. Both of them have text to code. While Amazon is the biggest cloud provider, they have the most customers, which they can use to bundle these products together.
2: As I mentioned earlier, we we have been using machine learning in a very right. deep way in every one of our businesses. We have our own large language models that we've been working on for uh, multiple years um, that fuel a lot of our experiences and. I think you should expect, in general, I think you should expect that um, Generative AI has the chance to transform every customer experience that you know. We are using it, investing in it very deeply across all of our businesses in Amazon. And then for AWS, we're going to make sure that every other company can use it as well.
0: Now, he's talked a little bit about the retail business. He's talked a lot about AWS. And the next thing that he's asked about is the advertising business which is adjacent to retail. That's a big part of the advertising business, but it's not the only aspect of the advertising business. Amazon's advertising includes both retail and sponsored listings, but it also includes Twitch TV. It also includes Amazon Prime Video. They sell ads all over the place. And this is a massive growing business. I personally believe that Amazon's advertising business is superior to both Google's and Meta's. It is more direct than either of those companies. And the growth rate so far of the advertising business has been staggering. Even when most advertising
2: focused businesses have, I think, slowed over the last several quarters, and a lot of that is just our advertising is uniquely um, effective um, as we're able to. If you think about on Amazon, when you're an advertiser, we have the ability with the machine learning algorithms that we've built and we continue to spend most of our resource on that because we understand shopping behaviors, we're able to, when customers search for something, we're able to place advertisements there that are relevant to what their search are. So customers respond better to them, which means they're more effective, which means advertisers like advertising there. So it's, um, you know, most of our resource continues to be in making those machine learning algorithms more targeted and, and, and more relevant for customers. I think we've done a pretty good job. We have more we can do.
0: He highlights again the main reason I think Amazon has the superior advertising business. When you search in a Term in Amazon, they know exactly what you're looking to buy. And they can use machine learning to prompt you with sponsored listings that are the perfect fit for what you're searching for. That's the most direct form of advertising you can get. You can compare this to both Google and Meta. When you're watching a YouTube video or you're searching something on Google search, oftentimes you're not looking to buy something. So they're going to have to convince you to buy something when you're not looking to buy something. When you're scrolling through Instagram or you're scrolling through Facebook, In most cases, you're also not looking to buy something. So they're doing a lot more work to get the customer to buy something. It requires more tracking, it requires more effort. When you go to amazon.com, you are looking to purchase something.
2: I think you should also remember in our advertising business that most of it is in uh, our own and operated properties. We still have a lot of opportunity to thoughtfully integrate advertising into our video, into our live sports, into our um, audio products, into groceries. So it's still pretty early days for us with respect to what's possible in advertising. You mentioned-
0: Now this next part, he addresses something that he never addressed in his letter. In the letter, he went over the retail business, he went over AWS, he went over Kuiper, he went over the advertising business, but he never went over media. And Harry's asked directly about Amazon Prime Video. What is Amazon trying to accomplish with their video service?
2: We're trying to build the, the the best destination and the best collection of streaming video content anywhere. And and live sports turns out to be something that people really like. Um, you know, it, it draws a lot of people. Our you know our our Thursday night football had the largest number of of new Prime customers signing up for it. And you know, live sports has been successful for us in Europe too, with um, with uh, uh, EPL and UEFA. So I think you can expect that we'll do more sports.
0: Now, it seems like a lot of the bigger companies and media are going into sports. Apple wants to own sports. Google wants to own sports. Amazon does. The same thing with Comcast and Disney. Every major video content platform wants to have their hands in sport, except for the notable standout, which is Netflix. Now, finally, the final question for Jassy is about the stock and the stock price. How much does he spend of his time focusing on the stock price?
2: I don't spend a lot of my time focused on the stock price. It's kind of, at Amazon, you remember, I, I've been at Amazon almost 26 years now, so I, I kind of grew up here. And uh, we have always had this perspective that it, you can't be too. For- First of all, we tend to be long term focused. There's that adage that in the short term, the stock market is a voting machine, and in the long term, it's a weighing machine. And we've really seen that over 26 years. In any one period of time, it may be you know, further up or further down, but it really matters what you do for customers over a long period but you've of time. Changed the-
0: it's the answer you'd expect from any good CEO that they don't spend all their day looking at the stock price. Much better to focus on the things you have direct power over, which is the long-term growth of the company. So there we have both interviews. Let me know what you think of what they said, and I will see you in the next one.